Welcome to Health Plus Tech, the podcast where we explore the law that applies at the intersection of healthcare and technology. Hosted by McGuire Woods, episodes feature healthcare innovators and updates on the laws that apply to digital health businesses. Welcome to the Health Plus Tech Podcast. I'm Kristen McDermott Woodrum, a healthcare partner in the Atlanta office of McGuire Woods. I'm joined by my partner, Holly Buckley, who's based in Chicago and chairs the McGuire Woods Healthcare Department. Holly and I lead the McGuire Woods Digital Health, Technology, and Innovation Practice and are hosts of this Health Plus Tech Podcast. Today, we are excited to welcome to the podcast, John Moore. John is the Senior Vice President, Consulting Services and Customer Success and Chief Risk Officer at Clearwater, with a background in privacy and security law, technology, and healthcare. John holds a BA in economics from Haverford College, a law degree from Penn State University's Dickinson Law, and an MS in electronic commerce from Carnegie Mellon School of Computer Science and Tepper School of Business. Welcome, John. Thank you. Great to be here. So, John, we're going to dig into your um, life story a little bit, start out here. Um, as we just heard from Kristen, you've um, had a really interesting professional background. You uh, started as an attorney. You held multiple roles at PwC, and now you're at Clearwater. Can you tell us a little about this journey and, and how you've ended up where you are? Sure. It's a, a bit of a circuitous route, I guess, to get to where I got to today in retrospect. But um, I, I think like maybe many, many somewhat familiar to you and certainly familiar to many attorneys started out in more of a traditional path. My father was an attorney. And so he was guiding a bit of that and, and uh, did the clerking for the judge thing and, and uh, was interested in potentially doing trial work. Uh, so was a public defender for a while, which is an interesting experience. If you've ever had it, I was arguing a case before the Pennsylvania Supreme Court about two months after passing the bar, which was interesting. Um, the, uh, I uh, did that for a, a, a little while and, and started to kind of get burned out relatively rapidly with that. And my father suggested that maybe I wanted to explore some additional or other areas of practice and started doing um, work with uh, estate and, and business planning for high net worth individuals. And as a result of that, a couple of things happened. One was doing a lot of uh, presentations as part of business development for the for the practice, but also uh, we joined a, a group that was uh, using technology. This you ladies are probably too young to under, remember this, but when the World Wide Web was invented, that was kind of a new thing, and it uh, started to impact our law practice. and And uh, we started to use message groups with with our the state planning group we were part of, and and explore that a bit. and And that was really interesting to me. Uh, you know, it, it was really, um, I could tell that it or thought that it was going to be a very powerful um, technology and became more and more interested in, with it over time. In fact, probably more interested in the technology than I was um, with the estate planning uh, type of work, which which got kind of boring for me quickly. And um, I started to look for opportunities to get a better understanding of of e-commerce and the World Wide Web and, and, um, and to think about how that might uh, be impacted from a legal career perspective. I um, was fortunate enough to, to get into a program at Carnegie Mellon, which was a joint degree program 
from their school of computer science and their business schools. So half of our courses were computer science, half of them were business with the intention of creating individuals who were able to navigate between the two because there was a recognition that there was this disconnect between the technology folks and the business folks, which uh, impeded the the development of technology that would be uh, really effective in a business setting. Um, was the second attorney in the world to do that uh, and get through that program, which was um, which was very challenging for for me. Most of my peers were either secure software engineering type folks or engineering uh, backgrounds, and/or already had MBAs. So it was a, a bit different for for me coming from a legal background. Um, but while I was there, uh, unfortunately, the the nine eleven events occurred, and I was working on a um, special project in security and privacy with one of the professors there who was internationally known. Um, in security in the security field, and I was uh, also doing work for a, a defense contractor out of DC who was sponsoring a project that we worked on. And as a result of that, um, had an opportunity to present at a national conference associated with the um, circumstances of 9/11 and the implications for IT security more generally. And that went particularly well. And the uh, DC contractor who was sponsoring that. Um, started working on me to come to DC and work with them, and and uh, I would, had every intention of practicing uh, law and cybersecurity, e-commerce type of things. And they convinced me that I needed more experience in system development if I really wanted to do that, and then I should come to DC. And and so I did, um, and started actually came up with an idea for a uh, compliance and cybersecurity and and uh, IT governance compliance system for the federal government. Uh, FISMA was just coming out then. Uh, and we started building that um, for a number of uh, federal agencies uh, while I was there. However, that company was purchased um, maybe about a year after I was there. And I was getting recruited by PricewaterhouseCoopers at the time, uh, who was restarting their federal practice. And so I made the jump to PwC. Um, and at PwC started in security, privacy. Uh, they were, again, restarting their federal practice. So it was part of that federal practice startup. Um, while doing that, a uh, number of different things happened. I started kind of working up out of security into some of the other service areas that PwC provided. But also I was asked to help with a project at the National Institutes of Health um, that we were having some challenges with. And, and I went and did that and uh, did that successfully. And as a result of that, I was asked to stay on as a uh, one of the leaders in our federal healthcare practice at that time. So got through that, um, spent a lot of time with the NIH and HHS and and uh, Indian Health Service and a number of other folks in the in the health federal health uh, environment, and um, did that was there for quite a few years um, uh, working at PwC. Uh, ultimately, uh, left there uh, to go back to the practice of law when my father became ill and, and uh, needed some assistance with his law practice. Uh, unfortunately, shortly after that, he ended up passing away, and it took me some time to to uh, shut his law practice down at that point. Um, after that, was doing back into consulting again, and ultimately was recruited by uh, Clearwater uh, to come on and help them as their chief risk officer. And ultimately, uh, was asked to also take over responsibility for their consulting team and, and customer success teams as well. So that's the, the that's probably the the dime tour as opposed to the nickel tour of my life. So, <laughs> but no, that, thank you. That it's super unique path and. Um, each different experience really has, uh, I'm sure, contributed to a lot of the work that you're doing today. Um, would love to hear a little bit about that. What What are some of the things that you do at Clearwater 
And how does that translate into the client engagements that you're working on? Sure. Well, it's 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 interesting you say that. When I um, first was offered the position with Clearwater, uh, I was talking to my wife about it, and, and she encouraged me to take the position because it it essentially consisted of everything I had done all together uh, at once. So there was a you know there's a compliance component to what we do, uh, you know, mainly focused on HIPAA, but more broadly and in, in healthcare compliance that we help organizations with and cybersecurity more broadly compliance uh, areas. So there's there's that still that element to it, that legal element to it. We spend a lot of time working with attorneys in the healthcare uh, space to to assist them with uh, issues that their customers are having around cybersecurity and HIPAA more broadly. Um, so there's that piece too. And I also do a lot of uh, public speaking and, and uh, writing on behalf of, of Clearwater to make sure that um, our customers sort of have a perspective on what's happening in, in healthcare uh, generally and, and more specifically in some particular areas that are uh, niche areas of expertise for me that I've developed over the t- over time. Um, so that continues on. Um, the cybersecurity, of course, is a big part of, of what we do. And, and we've really grown um, the services that we offer during the time that I've been here at, at Clearwater uh, you know, to be more of a, a, the ability to provide a comprehensive set of solutions to uh, the healthcare industry and different segments within the healthcare industry as well, because I'm sure, as you're well aware, there's there's some uh, some significant differences between uh, different types of organizations when healthcare and they have their unique um, needs and and expectations and strategies, etc., that have to be taken into consideration from a compliance as well as a cybersecurity perspective. Uh, so do a lot of work uh, there as well, and and uh, you know having come with the the experience of of leading consulting teams. Um, at Pricewaterhouse, Cooper is also leading that team as well, and helping uh, the consultants to develop throughout their career, and, and uh, you know, be on that path to mastery to constantly be looking at how they can improve their skill set as well is really important and deliver value to our customers. That's all very interesting. And as you know, Clearwater offers a range of services, but also technologies that are focused on risk assessment and data security. So, Don, what role do you think technology can play in an effective cybersecurity program? Well, it's, I mean, it's absolutely necessary. When I, when I think of a cybersecurity program, um, if I look at what are the building blocks of such a program, we think of or speak in terms of controls, and there's different types of controls. There, we can think of it as administrative and, and technical and physical controls, and certainly from a from a technical control perspective, since we're building IT systems, most of those controls exist within the IT systems themselves. And there's all sorts of things from from things that would be very familiar to most people, like passwords and and uh, you know now multi-factor authentication. I think pretty much everybody's familiar with, and those are types of technical controls that exist. And in addition to that, there's other um, solutions that are are. Uh, technology related, for example, to search for vulnerabilities in your environment and manage um, intrusions into your environment, but also from an administrative perspective, some of the more administrative controls, including risk analysis, there's opportunities to uh, to do a, a more efficient and effective job of, of executing on those administrative type of controls through the use of technology itself. So uh, one of the things that Clearwater has become known for in particular is our um, solution, our software solution to IRM analysis that facilitates the risk analysis process that's required by HIPAA. And as probably most of this audience knows, 
a risk analysis. There's lots of things out there in the world that are thought of as risk analysis in the cybersecurity space. That's a very particular thing um, for risk analysis under HIPAA and HIPAA's security rule. Uh, so it's a bit of a term of art in, in that respect. Most uh, well, I think, defined by the, the guidance that OCR put out a little over a decade ago. Um, when Clearwater was first uh, created, um, Bob Chaput, our founder, recognized the challenge with doing risk analysis in the way that uh, at least it seemed to be envisioned under the HIPAA security rule. And he created a software solution uh, with the other folks here at Clearwater to facilitate the execution of that risk analysis. And, and uh, that's really has distinguished much of what we've done historically. Um, recently, we are also, uh, because of all the work we've done and the data that we have associated with that, we've been able to introduce artificial intelligence and some other uh, capability within the software itself to facilitate um, the ability for organizations to get a, a better, clearer picture of where their risks are within the organization and make better, more informed decisions about how they're going to uh, treat those risks on an ongoing basis. And, and uh, so it's not just the compliance aspect of it, which is important, obviously, um, from a HIPAA security perspective, but also that I think the real intent of that process is to help organizations make those more informed decisions about how best to manage their, their risk in a reasonable and appropriate way. Yeah, absolutely, and that's fascinating. Um, so HIPAA, HIPAA is generally the first law people think about for healthcare privacy and security, but there are a number of other federal agencies and also state governments that are becoming really active in this area. Um, this summer, the SEC adopted rules requiring public companies to disclose cybersecurity incidents and their processes for assessing, identifying, and managing material risks from cybersecurity threats, including board oversight. What advice do you have for these larger organizations? Sure. So, so the FTC regulations are are similar to HIPAA. You know, another uh, I think legislative uh, induced attempt to get organizations to truly put into place an effective cyber risk management program and, and to start to make responsibility for those risk treatment decisions and managing that risk at the board level and leadership level. And, and I think that's important because at the end of the day, it's those folks who have the ability to fund an appropriate program. And so uh, you know that's particularly important um, uh, for an effective program is to is to have sponsors uh, who are able to make those types of decisions. So if you're an organization that falls under uh, those requirements, uh, it's important to I think evaluate to the extent to which you have a program in place and look for opportunities to improve that, certainly from a governance structure perspective, making sure that uh, that the appropriate information is going to uh, those folks at the board level so that they can make informed decisions, making sure that you have those processes in place to, to uh, both understand, develop, and, and uh, gather that information from your environment uh, and inform those de decisions is, is critical. Uh, you know, having that risk analysis, risk management, risk response planning type of approach is, is particularly important. Um, for me, we, we often look to the uh, National Institutes of Standards and Technology special publications, and in particular, those publications associated with 
risk analysis and, and the risk management process more broadly. Uh, and if you look at the risk management process as defined uh, within those NIST special publications, they'll talk about framing, which is really coming up with that strategy for the organization and how they're going to look at and manage risk. What's that governance structure? How are they going to evaluate risk on an ongoing basis? What's the scope of that uh, of that analysis? And I think that's uh, probably one of the areas where there's a lot of opportunity for many organizations to to uh, make a uh, to invest some time to more formally understand that, and in particular for organizations that are publicly traded that probably already have or should already have an enterprise risk management program in place, align their cybersecurity risk management program with that broader ERM program. Uh, then you can get into the analysis itself. How are you going to conduct that analysis? What's the scope of the analysis? The methodology you're going to follow to do that, uh, making sure that that's documented and followed on an ongoing basis, uh, responding to those risks. So understanding uh, what are we going to do with those risks that exceed our threshold uh, as an organization? What's the treatment plan? How are we going to follow up to make sure that that plan is is executed on and that and the and particular uh, any mitigation uh, exercises or activities uh, are followed up on and and uh, are occurring as planned, um, and then ultimately monitoring the program on an ongoing basis. You need to have all of those components in place to have an effective program and make those informed decisions that I think the SEC is expecting organizations to do and report on. Yeah, absolutely. Um... Switching gears a little bit, most, many of our clients, um, even smaller growth companies, operate across state lines, which mm -hmm. can subject them to a variety of different state data privacy and security laws. What advice do you give to companies who are developing an effective, um, to, to help them develop an effective data security program when they're operating under all these different regimes? Sure. So when we uh, when we talk to organizations about uh, putting an actual security program in place, and again, you know, the building blocks of that program are the security controls, but kind of looking above um, that level, what's the process that one would go to to define what that program might look like? And I think that um, for us, oftentimes we'll again look to NIST and in particular the NIST cybersecurity framework as a mechanism to define the 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 framework literally that that we're going to use to align those building blocks of controls and and we want to ultimately develop a program that's going to be reasonable and appropriate for the organization. So not, not everybody needs a Cadillac, as they might say, uh, you know, what you're trying to get to is something that's reasonable, appropriate for you. And that's going to change for most organizations over time. So this isn't a once and done kind of thing, but an ongoing process that they need to go through. So what the process look like? Uh, well, one of the first things that they're going to want to do is understand uh, some baseline controls that they want to put in place. So what's that baseline of controls um, that they they should be looking for, and there's a number of different um, uh, areas or or um, places you can look for baselines. In particular, we're oftentimes now looking to the the 405D uh, hiccup, the health industry cybersecurity practices um, standards, as a as a way to look for different baseline controls for different sizes and types of organizations. I think the publications that have come out of the uh, Joint Cybersecurity Work Group are, are, are particularly effective. 
in, um, in helping organizations understand what's right for us, given our size and type of organization. But one of the other things they're going to need to do is they're going to need to understand all of those uh, rules and regulations that might apply to them and, and even contractual obligations that are likely to apply to them from a cybersecurity uh, and broader compliance perspective as well. So am I subject to HIPAA? Am I subject to privacy rule and security rule or some, uh, you know, maybe not as much of the privacy rule? What are the expectations of my customers? What am I going to be contractually obligated to do on an ongoing basis from a cybersecurity perspective? Um, what uh, other federal or state regulations might apply to me as an organization. It's a great opportunity to engage with your counsel to, to understand that, uh, you know, to have that, that list of, of requirements that are going to be a, uh, applicable to our organization. And what I need to do then is um, looking through those, uh, those requirements and working with counsel to understand what those requirements are, um, identify what, if any, additional controls I'm going to need to put in place above that baseline uh, that I've established for my organization and then implement um, those controls on, uh, to, to build out that program. Um, one of the other things I'm going to want to do is I'm going to want to conduct risk analysis at that time to understand, okay, I've got my baseline got the additional controls that are required for compliance uh, from a compliance perspective. Now let's look at my risks. Do I have any risks now that still exceed my threshold given the controls that I have in place? Or are there additional controls that I might want to consider to further reduce my risk to an acceptable level for, for me and my organization, given our risk tolerance and, and what we do as a business? Uh, all of those things together would inform um, the controls and the program that I want to have in place. And again, uh, you know, things change over time. So I need to constantly be looking at uh, how things, how's that's changing and what, if any additional requirements uh, might apply to me, how's the, the threats that are out there, uh, you know, targeting organizations like mine and healthcare in particular, uh, how are they changing and do I need to make any changes to my control structure to uh, address those risks? All of those things need to be managed on an ongoing basis to effectively uh, manage the risk to the organization. Thanks, John. Um, wanted to look at a couple of particular areas where we certainly get a fair amount of calls um, first, what to um, get your sense of any trends that you're seeing with respect to ransomware attacks? Um, how, if at all, are the ransomware attacks we're seeing today different from five years ago? And maybe talk a little bit about how you tend to advise in some of these situations. So the the um, ransomware, I think that um, e even given how prevalent it is and, and how much press it gets, I think many folks still underestimate the sophistication uh, of these groups that are conducting ransomware attacks. And, and I mean, it's to the point where um, I can go out on the dark web and get a franchise for ransomware. And, and essentially I'll be provided with all of the tools uh, that I need to launch ransomware attacks in an organization. And I just need to share uh, the ransom with the organization that provided the, the tools. It's that type of sophistication. There's also a specialization within the field where some folks will specialize in getting access to the organization while others specialize in deploying the ransomware. So what we're not dealing with, um, you know, a, a trivial a threat actor here. We're dealing with very sophisticated international criminal organizations and all, and even in some cases, nation state types of organizations that are engaging in these types of activities. So, so what have we seen? Well, uh, it's, it's like any type of, uh, let's call it arms war, where uh, over time, as the industry has developed uh, mechanisms, controls, 
to protect against or, or limit the impact of the ransomware attacks. The ransomware actors uh, change their tactics as well to continue to be very effective in what they do. And, and um, so we've seen increases in the number of attacks. We've seen increases in the sophistication of attacks. We start to see things like, well, it's not just the ransomware, but they're also exfiltrating uh, data. So even if you're able to overcome the ransomware, they'll say, hey, that's great, but we stole this data and we're going to expose it if you don't pay us the ransom. Uh, we've seen, uh, we've had cases where um, when the organizations didn't respond in a way that the ransomware actors expect, they started calling family members of the CEOs of the organization that they had targeted. I mean, we've seen some very insidious types and threatening them. Uh, we've seen some very insidious types of activity on the on behalf of the ransomware actors, and and it just can, seems to continue and and seems to get. Uh, progressively worse over time. We've the the latest uh, statistics show a ransomware attacks can be between you know the impact on organization between ten and hundred million dollars. I know for a fact there's been multiple organizations uh, where the damages have far exceeded that uh, and have worked with them. And and uh, you know it, it's an incredible uh, thing to to see. And unfortunately, um, you know what's becoming more and more clear, particularly for those healthcare providers that are victims of ransomware attacks is that that has a significant impact on patient safety. And if there's nothing that uh, should scare people more than that, it's, it's, it's that. And, and, you know, you, you imagine yourself going into a hospital and do an ER with a critical healthcare emergency and suddenly them not having the availability of uh, the systems that they would typically use to monitor and provide care for you. Uh, you know, I can't think of a kind of more frightening scenario from a cybersecurity perspective than that. And, and that's the kind of thing we're seeing today in healthcare, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the next one is one that we could probably have an entire podcast about uh, as with many of these topics, but we're seeing a lot of um, attention both from the government and in the industry on uh, tracking technologies, um, including enforcement actions around this and, and class action lawsuits. Um, can you talk a little bit about the specific issue and how the industry has been reacting? Yes. Uh, the So the sometimes called web beacons and other tracking type of technology, the Metapixel uh, for in, in particular for the Meta tool or other pixel type tracking tools. I mean, what these things do is they, as you, as you traverse the internet, um, the websites that you visit are capturing information about you. And, and it can be, it can vary depending on, on the tools that are used and, and your uh, browsing habits, but oftentimes they'll know where you came from and where you're going to after you leave the site. They'll also collect information about you um, while you're on the site in regard to what pages you visit and, and information that you fill out and those types of things. And so they're, they're capturing that information about your browsing habits. They can also oftentimes get other uh, history and things from your browser as well. When you talk about Meta uh, and some of these um, Google and some of the other players that are out there that, that really have the ability to uh, effectively track you as you're moving across the internet. And, and, and most of them have profiles of some sort or another that they've developed around you. So, uh, you know, they're gathering that information primarily for purposes of marketing to you. Um, uh, I mean, that's the, the, the main purpose. And certainly the healthcare organizations that I've talked to that have implemented these tools, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to, to understand how they can better market and, and serve their uh, customer base. Unfortunately, as, as you're well aware, you know, we operate in a, uh, in healthcare, which is, is, uh, has a highly regulated, 
um, space relative to other industries in the U.S. around privacy. And, and the Office for Civil Rights has taken the position where um, in most cases, and it gets a little gray in some areas, uh, but for, for most purposes, they uh, are saying that the use of these tracking technologies on your website or your mobile apps that uh, that folks might have is a violation of HIPAA because you're essentially gathering or able to infer, I think probably is more accurate, uh, things about the visitor, about their medical conditions and and uh, uh, and and other kind of medical history that might exist about them. Now, whether or not that's true is probably um, a good opportunity for litigation if someone wanted to pay for that. Um, but what we've seen happening more and more frequently is that um, that folks are taking down the tools just to avoid it because of the penalties that organizations have have been um, hit with, uh, that most other organizations are just taking the tools off their website. Now, there's uh, at least one or two vendors out there that claim to be HIPAA compliant that provides similar sort of tracking technology. And so I think there may be a argument to be made that that um, if that is in fact the case and they're willing to sign a business associate agreement, then it's an even uh, you know, more challenging effort to say that uh, that you're out of compliance. Um, I think that the, the American, I think it was American Hospital Association filed um, something recently or objected recently to the to the um, guidance that was put out by OCR. And, and I'm having talked to a number of attorneys in the industry, I don't think that I've heard anyone say that it's great guidance. Uh, you know, it's, it's a bit difficult to interpret and understand what is allowed and what isn't allowed. And it's, I think, created a number of problems for for particularly the, the more traditional healthcare organizations that are already under a bit of pressure from some of the new uh, entrants into the marketplace that have come in from more of the traditional you know, technology space. Yeah, thank you. It's a super interesting topic. And I think over the next year, we'll have a lot more insight on the way this is going to go um because i think there's a lot of conflicting opinions on it and also a lot of activity in the in the courts and so forth so thank thank you for sharing your thoughts on that um and that nicely kind of segues into my next question and that is what advice do you have in vendor management um and uh, how, how do you appropriately allocate risk in these relationships what are some best practices you're hitting all the hard topics uh, today. So, uh, you know, vent, the reason why vendor risk management is such an issue is because if you look back historically over the last few years and at what the biggest breaches are in healthcare, they're usually a vendor. Uh, you know, it's a vendor and they have a breach and it cascades across uh, lots of players in the healthcare space and, and becomes these these huge problems. Um, and so there's a, obviously a significant concern on the, on the part of uh, healthcare organizations around the risk associated with their vendors. Now, uh, that said, it, it, now you get into the question of, well, how do I manage that effectively? Uh, how do I understand the risk associated with the use of any particular vendor? And that becomes a bit challenging. Historically, uh, what organizations have done when they sort of down this path is uh, kind of one of two different approaches or maybe both. Uh, one approach is I start asking more uh, specific questions around my vendors and their security programs to understand, again, uh, what controls do they have in place? So it's not just, hey, sign this business associate agreement. I want to understand better uh, what controls you have in place to protect the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of the patient information that I'm going to be sharing with you. Um, and, and so we see 
questionnaires and and those questionnaires can range anywhere I've seen from a you know a handful of questions to pages and hundreds of questions um, which creates a tremendous burden on the vendors themselves and and they're not uh, exactly thrilled to fill them out and and it's time consuming etc etc cetera, et cetera. I've also seen organizations that try to leverage some of the new automated solutions out there, the security scorecards, bit sites, and others um, that that purport to go out and scan um, the the publicly um, visible footprint of the vendor organization. Um, they'll also look at dark websites and and other places for information around the vendors, and and from that try to uh, try to generate some sort of insight into um, the risk associated with that vendor. And, and that's a little quicker and, and uh, cheaper way to go. However, there's problems associated with that as well as those those um, those uh, reports often generate uh, a lot of information that isn't necessarily accurate or helpful to the organization who's trying to make a decision around whether or not this vendor is going to be appropriate for them from a risks perspective. So, and I've seen organizations try to do both of those. The, the problem with the first approach is that is a tends to be a cost and time problem. Um, it's expensive to do it. It's hard to get the vendors to to uh, provide the information, it drags, et cetera, et cetera. And you can get them to do it the first time because they want to make the sale, but then following up yeah. on a long basis is problematic, right? They, they're not as interested then um, when after they've already made the sale. Uh, there's been a number of efforts by different organizations to create a platform um, to share information to make this more efficient. But but I think um, so far anyway, I think they're struggling with the uh, um, with the traditional problem of any sort of platform type solution, you got to get enough folks on at least one side of the platform to draw the others in. And, and so there's a, uh, you know, I think that there's a, a lot of that going on and kind of still competing sort of interests to, to be the standard um, for how we do vendor risk management in the, in the industry. Yeah, certainly challenging and, and not a great single solution. Um, so final kind of cutting edge topic here, and that is around uh, artificial intelligence. We couldn't really have, have a podcast with you and, and not at least spend a few minutes talking about AI. Um, and really just curious if you're seeing best practices develop for sharing and using data for machine learning. Um, what, what's new in this space? Yeah, the organizations are a bit all over the place with this as well. I think there's some that are that are, and I, this I think it probably is reflective of people in general uh, when they start to think about AI. And I think it, you know AI and machine learning has been around for a while now. Recently, although we had the the uh, launching of these large language learning models like ChatGPT and others that make it. Uh, much more accessible, I think, to the average person, where you suddenly start to engage, able to engage in these uh, with these technologies, and it makes it very real um, for folks, as opposed to kind of most of the solutions we've had previously. Um, uh, but but we're seeing it all over healthcare, whether it's you know AI assisting with the reading of. Um, scans or AI assisting with chatbots that uh, folks are engaging with, or you know, as, uh, a ton of other solutions as well. That um, where there's applications for artificial intelligence, I think that there's um, you know other organizations that are taking a more um, 
risky approach to it where, you know, they're just in- introducing these solutions without having really thought through them. And then there's those folks that are probably the more the middle of the road where they they recognize the need to adopt artificial intelligence, machine learning enabled solutions within their environment. They also recognize that there's potential risks associated with the use of those solutions. And so they're, they're looking to uh, adopt a governance structure or a risk management structure associated with uh, the adoption of these solutions. And, and a lot of that um, is similar to what we've talked about previously with cybersecurity. Generally, it's understanding the controls around the solution, the use of the data within the solution, um, you know, how how the organization is addressing potential bias in the solutions. And there are a lot of, uh, of potential issues associated with, excuse me, the use of artificial intelligence and having appropriate governance structure, appropriate evaluation uh, and understanding of the risks associated with those tools is important. And a lot of the leading organizations we're um, seeing uh, in this space are are recognizing that and adopting those types of governance structures. Again, we, when we work with organizations to do that, uh, we leverage some of the work again by the National Institutes of Standards and Technology in this space to help them uh, come up with a, 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 governance and risk management um, structure for AI that's going to be effective in their organizations. Uh, you know, one of the things when I talk to people about AI, it's like it's like every tool that's ever been developed since the club, it can be used for good or it can be used for evil. And the only difference is that, you know, the, these tools become more and more powerful over time and the, their use for good can be exponentially bigger and their use for bad can be exponentially better. And, and we just need to con- you know recognize that, I think, when we're thinking about using them and, and take appropriate uh, precautions to address the risk. That's a really interesting observation, John. So taking that and then looking forward, what do you see on the horizon for impending cybersecurity threats, for enforcement, and for best practices? Um, I think we're going to continue to see uh, the the cybercrime gangs and other threat actors targeting healthcare in particular, where you know, we, we tend to be apparently an easy mark for them. And, and, uh, and I don't and I think the organizations, particularly given the current economic situation, are, are struggling to appropriately fund their cybersecurity, cyber risk management programs at an appropriate level to address the risk and threats that they face in many cases. Uh, so I think that's going to continue to be a challenge going forward. Uh, the other thing that, that we see, and this has been you know going on for some time as well, is the technology is becoming more complex. As the technology becomes more complex, the risks become more complex. And, and it's uh, you need more and more specialized uh, knowledge in order to deal with that. And, and the cybersecurity industry in particular has really struggled uh, finding the, uh, enough talent, uh, you know, enough uh, folks to meet the need that's out there, not just in healthcare, but but more generally across all industries. And so that's an ongoing problem as well for, for us <clears throat> uh, in, in uh, healthcare as well as in cybersecurity. Um, so I think we're going to continue to see that. Obviously, uh, artificial intelligence isn't going away. Machine learning isn't going away. Um, and, and I think that the, as it becomes uh, more and more adopted and it moves closer and closer to the patient, um, the risks to, to patient safety, both from, from AI, machine learning, but also more generally are, are going to take a, a, a more important um, or a become more prominent in their discussions around cybersecurity as we see that the impact of these things 
on patient safety. One of the other things that is a bit concerning too, in addition to the cyber criminals that are out there, um, we now have, you know, whenever we have uh, unrest in the political sphere on a global basis, you can start to see um, hack division, hacktivism, you know, where where hackers are motivated by some sort of political motivation to go after organizations. And, and so that becomes an increasing risk as we have more volatility in the world as well. And, and, and it's my hope that um, certainly that, you know, some of the unrest that we see currently in the world that that we're able to find uh, a solution quickly that that. Uh, addresses that and and that it doesn't continue to escalate, but but it's certainly a risk that um, we need to be aware of uh, in healthcare and um, cybersecurity more generally. Those are great insights, John, and thank you so much for joining us today. This has been an extremely interesting conversation, and we really appreciate your perspective on all things data security and compliance. If people want to get in touch with you, what is the best way, John? Is a LinkedIn or a website you want to share? Um, so you can always find me on LinkedIn and under John Moore and, and Clearwater, uh, probably clearwatersecurity.com is the easiest way to find us though. Uh, so clearwatersecurity.com, you can, you can, uh, request a follow-up directly from the website and, and there you can see a lot of the thought leadership that I talked about that we generate, um, from our founding, our, our founder, Bob Chaput, that I mentioned earlier was, had many careers, even uh, more careers than me in his life. And, and, uh, one of those was at a high school, uh, uh, teacher and educator. And that continued on when he developed Clearwater and in his other careers as well. So uh, education for the industry is critically important to us. It's one of our core values at Clearwater. So uh, if you go to clearwatersecurity.com, you can find all sorts of white papers and webinars and other things around the topics that we talked about today, as well as other topics that are uh, in healthcare and and, um, cybersecurity and compliance as well. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that, John. And thanks to everyone who joined today's episode of the Health Plus Tech Podcast. I'm Kristen McDermott-Woodrum, and I've had the honor, along with Holly Buckley, of speaking with John Moore of Clearwater today. We hope you'll join us for future episodes of this Health Plus Tech Podcast.